I think it's interesting that we talked about the Spirit of God. I, I didn't, I don't, I think I've told you all of this bef before, but um, I don't plan out the songs. I don't know what responsive reading, or even if we're going to have a responsive reading. We just sang a song that seems to have been tailor-made for the message today, and so was the responsive reading, so hopefully that'll become somewhat obvious as we get through everything this morning, but uh, I never cease to um, be amazed at how the Holy Spirit is present, uh, and I'm, I more marvel at the fact that I wonder how many times I've missed him, uh, so May the Lord sensitize us all the more. Well, I want to uh, invite you to stroll through the book of Ecclesiastes with me this month of July. And if you're not even sure what I just said, uh, Ecclesiastes is a book in the Bible. And uh, if you'll permit me this morning, I'm going to do a bit of a long-winded uh, introduction because I want you to understand the neighborhood in which Ecclesiastes lives, known as wisdom literature. It really is amazing that God has spoken to human beings, and he's spoken to us through stories, through legal documentations, through sermons, uh, and then even through strange things like the wisdom literature. And wisdom literature reminds me of a beautiful city park. It's just attractive. There's just it's one of the favorite, certain parts of wisdom literature are the most favorite section of the Bible for most people. You walk into this city park, but if you spend any time in all of the wisdom literature, sooner or later, you're going to find a dead body in that city park. And what started out as this beautiful, glorious landscape that just seems like a full of comfort suddenly becomes a frightening place that's quite disturbing, and you find yourself saying, I'm not sure I want to ever come back here again. Wisdom literature is very strange that way. Let me just walk you through a few of the things. There's the book of Job. Think about it. If you haven't ever read Job, um, Job is a story about a man who's suffering. And at the very beginning of it, we see this audience, this strange audience between Satan and God, and we actually s seem to understand how it is that Job is suffering. God himself sort of tempted Satan to, to uh, make him suffer, so to speak, and that's strange enough. But then at the very end of Job's, we have 66 questions in which God never tells Job why he had him suffer. We're privy to the opening scene, but Job never seems to know about it. And God never seems to give him an explanation for one of the, the most fundamental questions that human beings struggle with. Now, Job's life is restored after everything being taken away from him, including his children. All of his fortunes get restored, but the book of Job ends with his original children still dead. Well, then there's the book of Psalms. Everybody loves the book of Psalms. And uh, in the book of Psalms, let's see, there we go. There's beautiful ways that we're taught how to pray in the book of Psalms. Uh, we're taught how to praise God. Uh, there are some Psalms that are very instructive. That's their purpose. Even as we sing these public songs of worship, which is what they are, we're even instructing ourselves. Think of Psalm 1 that opens up with the, how blessed is the person who meditates on God's word day and night. 
But then there's a whole bunch of lament psalms as well, right? Psalms that just talk about the struggles, the common struggles of human beings. And quite often these lament psalms are very honest with God while being respectful of God, but very honest in their prayers to God, and the psalms end with a note of hope toward the, toward the end of them. But what do you do with Psalm 88? Here's a lament psalm in the Bible that has no good ending at all. It, it just, it's as though there is no God. But think about this for a moment. Who included Psalm 88 in the word of God forever? God himself. Why would God stick that kind of song in the Psalms? I'm not going to answer that, but that's the point being that Psalms aren't quite as simple as you think sometimes. Now, there's also this other interesting book, The Song of Songs, our Song of Solomon. It's this romantic journey, which is almost so detailed that some people seem to stay away from it. It's this very romantic novel of, of human intimacy in its, in its sort of ultimate form. But The Song of Solomon actually is a story that, yes, it's about two individuals, it's about their romantic love, but it points to an ultimate intimacy between human beings and God and even human beings and other human beings that is far superior to the best example we can have, marital love. It's so far superior to it, it envisions a world in which marriage and sex are not needed for the best of human intimacy. How's that for a strange book? <laughs> And then we come to Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. These two books side by side would make someone question whether the Bible really is the Word of God. After all, Proverbs 12.21, here's one example. No ill befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. Beautiful little statements over and over in the book of Proverbs that seem to say, this is an obvious truth, look around you. And then you have the strange book, Ecclesiastes. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. There are hundreds of these very clear, seemingly contradictions between the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. So what's going on here? Well, Kevin Van Hooser is a very uh, talented biblical uh, specialist out of Trinity Seminary who's written a book. Um, the title of that book is Drama of Doctrine. And he says, what's happening in the wisdom literature of all these books is we are seeing life from multiple perspectives. It's like we're looking into a house from a variety of windows. Some things overlap, some things seem to even contradict. He says, we're seeing life from multiple perspectives and we're learning which perspective to adopt in different situations. Now, the Bible's not about relativism, which is so common today that I can't imagine there's anybody in this room that hasn't been influenced by it. Relativism is the idea that there's no one truth for all people in all times, there's just my truth. And so we're all just sort of playing tennis with my truth. This is not relativism. But it's also not something else that's becoming even more common today, polarization. My one single window through which I see the world is the only window through which to see the world. 
No, what Van Hooser says is God gives us a pluralism of vocabularies in order to give an adequate account of how matters stand. We need all of these different pluralities of vocabulary to be able to see the whole story. And in an excellent book, which you're going to hear probably too much of by the end of the year, Biblical Critical Theory, Chris Watkins, this brilliant Australian, has, has put together this collection of thoughts throughout the church history and throughout systematic theology and biblical theology. He speaks about something called diagonalization. Now, you don't have to remember this word. I'm just throwing it out there to impress you. Um, but here's how you can think of it. He says that the tendency for humanity is to create these, um, these dichotomies, these, these uh, false dichotomies, so that we have over here, some people are really into God's love, and over here, some people are really into God's justice. Sometimes human beings are really into power, and other people are really into weakness, and they sort of see the whole world through just one or the other. And what he says is the Bible is not an either-or, the Bible's also not a both-and. The Bible is a both-yet. So when you look at the cross, what do you see? You see the merging of God's love and justice that is both what people are saying about love and justice, yet so much more than what they're saying. In fact, if you want to see an interesting example of this, I would encourage you to read Mark chapter 12, when two very different audiences that... that it's an oversimplification to say that the liberals come to Jesus and then the conservatives come to Jesus because that would be an unfair representation. But in Mark 12, two different parties that are opposed to each other come to Jesus and ask him a question. And his answer is brilliant because it's what neither party expects. And that's what, he's, that's what Watkins means by this diagonalization. And finally, the person that's probably the clearest of all on this idea of what wisdom literature does, how it kind of helps you see life from different perspectives, is this old dead guy named G.K. Chesterton. So here it is. He says the virtues, he says this about 100 years ago, the virtues, in other words, the, the common truths of humanity, that's just what he means by virtues, the virtues have gone mad because they have been isolated from each other and are wandering alone. And then he gives us an example. Thus, some scientists care for truth, and their truth is pitiless. In other words, it's without compassion. Some humanitarians only care for pity. And their pity, I'm sorry to say, is often untruthful. <laughs> and then he gives us an example. Even orthodox theology, the theology that has been believed by Christians throughout the world in the ages has specially insisted that Christ was not a being apart from God and man like an elf, nor yet a being half human and half not like a centaur, but both things at once and both things thoroughly, very man and very God. He's giving us an example of how the Bible always breaks through these false dichotomies and especially wisdom literature and says even more. And finally, he gives us this interesting and humorous little antidote of um, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. The real trouble with this world of ours is not that it, has, it is an unreasonable world, that is, Ecclesiastes alone, nor even that it is a reasonable one, Proverbs alone. The commonest kind of trouble is that it is nearly reasonable, but not quite. Do you get the point already, you know, that, that this is the beauty of Scripture. 
And we're going to see that especially in the book of Ecclesiastes. I think in, in one simple statement, I would say this is why God gave us the wisdom literature neighborhood of the Bible. To show us that God is knowable, but he's not comprehensible. There are certain things we can know about him. But as soon as you think you've circled the wagons and you really understand God, he's going to throw you for a loop. He's knowable, but he's not comprehensible. And if there's one book in the Bible of all 66 books that I think is especially written for us in the Western world, in a prosperous world, in our specific world, a book that afflicts the comfortable and comforts the afflicted, it's the book of Ecclesiastes. That's the long-winded introduction. Let me pray, and then let's see how much we can cover. <laughs> Father, we are grateful that your wisdom is not simply better than ours, more comprehensive than ours, but it's vastly beyond ours. And yet, we can know some of it, enough of it, for both the affliction we need and the comfort we need. And we invite you to do that now in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ecclesiastes chapter 1, you have some of it right there in your bulletin. Uh, but I invite you to um, look in your Bible if you have one. We're going to do a uh, speed read through chapter 1 and chapter 2 and cover most of that this morning. And if you want to know Ecclesiastes, you've got to deal with this word vanity. It's all over in the book. But it's, over, it's in specific places too. It begins the book, verse 2 of chapter 1, and it ends the book, verse 18 of chapter 12. And there are different words for it. Breath is another translation of this word. Vapor is another translation of this word. Fleeting is another translation of this word. Uh, Diane read for us from Psalm 39. That's how it was used there. Life is fleeting. We're a shadow. Uh, Psalm 144 says the same thing. Uh, Walter Kaiser, an Old Testament scholar, says that uh, you can think of it as puzzle of puzzles. All is puzzling as another way to get at this idea of vanity. And yet what's so interesting about this very strange book in the Bible that seems to say that life is utterly meaningless, which by the way, some Bibles translate the word vanity as meaningless. I think that's an unfortunate an unhelpful uh, translation. I think vanity and fleeting and vapor is much closer to the idea of Ecclesiastes. But here is this book about the puzzling nature of life that ends with one of the clearest conclusions of all. I mean, you can't miss the conclusion in this book. The end of the matter. Because by now you're thinking, what are you trying to say? <laughs> and so he says, just, just to be clear, the end of the matter, after all has been heard, fear God, and keep his commandments. That's the whole duty of mankind. Now, I think there's a big problem if people simply say, there, that's the main idea in Ecclesiastes. That's like reading the last chapter of a, of a mystery novel before you read the whole thing. You're missing the whole point. It begs the question, what does it mean to fear God? What does it mean to fear God and keep his commandments? And that's what all of Ecclesiastes is doing. So here's my best attempt at giving you one sentence that describes the flow of 
uh, Ecclesiastes and answers that question. In a fallen world of exhausting uncertainty, the way forward is to fear God by finding contentment, a phrase that's used over and over in Ecclesiastes as enjoy life in his providence. So we'll unpack this over the next few weeks. Uh, But let's start with chapter 1. And let's just get a feel for this amazing book. Verse 1, the the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Then he goes on to give examples. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, it goes down, it hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south, goes around to the north, brings Canadian fires down. Around and round it goes, and on its circuit the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, the sea's not full. To the place where the streams flow, they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye's not satisfied with seeing, the ear's not filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. Let's pause for just a minute right there. So far in these first eight verses, he's basically saying life is short. Life is elusive. Life is repetitive. It's exhaustingly uncertain. It can't be figured out. The idea that we're going to see in Ecclesiastes is we're chasing As human beings, we are chasing what we know we can never catch or keep, a sense of certainty, uh, a sense of significance, uh, a sense of meaning, a sense of security, and in a word, what we're really chasing is happiness. And Ecclesiastes says, you're never going to get it. You're never going to get it. Verses 9 and 11, what has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is brand new? That's the idea there. It's already been in the ages before us. And when it comes to the past, there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. So 9 through 11 here are saying this. Think about the future for just a moment. Can you control it? I hope you know the answer is no to that. Ecclesiastes says there is absolutely no certainty in life that if you aim your life at something with all you've got, that you'll ever be able to hit it. And when it comes to the past, you can't really leave a legacy behind if that's your goal in life. You know, to have an impact, to live a life that people are going to remember because people don't. Guess what? They're going to forget. And you ready for this? You are going to be forgotten. Now, interestingly, and I would recommend this book if you really like Ecclesiastes and you want to read a simple book on Ecclesiastes that's very deep but very helpful and very accessible, Living Life Backwards by this, I think he's Irish, this guy David Gibson. What he says here is so particularly helpful because sometimes people have said, and maybe you believe this about Ecclesiastes, you could be right, 
I don't think you are, so I'm just going to say this up front. Uh, this is not a book about life, what life is like without Christ. That is not what Ecclesiastes is. It's just what the world is like. Ecclesiastes is a cold slap in the face of reality. It's the same forever. That's what it means to live under the sun. Let's just give you one classic example here. Verse 12 of chapter 1. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun. Behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom, to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after a win, because in much wisdom there is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So you could almost do uh, the last part of chapter one and say, education is the answer to everything. That's really what it's suggesting here. Uh, the idea that, you know, if I could just get wisdom, and wisdom here specifically is acquiring skill to master the chaos of life. Think about this, from the time we're little kids, you know what we're doing? We're educating kids, we're being educated, we're spending our whole life doing what? Acquiring skill in order to survive in this world and even thrive in this world and even prosper in this world. Education is the answer. This is what makes, this is what makes the difference between happy and successful people and poor people who are in misery. Well, according to verse 13, it's an unhappy business because with great knowledge, as verse 18 says, comes great sorrow. I like verse 15, which essentially says this, life is more mysterious than it is fixable. Life is much more mysterious than it is fixable. As someone said, not everything can be fixed. Not everything is a problem to be solved. Some things must be born in life. Some things must be suffered in life. Some things must be endured in life. Wisdom isn't about techniques to make life orderly and predictable. So if the latter half of chapter 1 says, if only I knew more, you know, if only I was smarter, well, then the beginning of chapter 2 says, well, if only I had more. <laughs> Let's read it. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. This too turned out to be vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched my heart how to cheer my body with mine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works, I built houses, planted vineyards for myself, gardens, parks, planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. Why, I made pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. I had male and female slaves, slaves who were born in my house, great possessions of herds and flocks, more than anyone who had been before me in Jerusalem. 
I also gathered for myself silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, men and women, many concubines, the delight of the children of man. I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. I was a functioning hedonist, essentially. Um, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. And then I considered all that my hands had done, the toil that had been expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So we know this, don't we? It doesn't matter what culture you're in. Toil brings pleasure. Toil brings accomplishments. Toil brings possessions. We can see that over and over again. Uh, it's an almost predictable fo formula. If you work hard, you're going to probably get pleasure, accomplishments, and some form of possessions. But it's all vanity. Somehow it doesn't give us what we want. And the reason why is found in the next couple of verses. Something that's probably the most disturbing idea that comes up over and over in Ecclesiastes, and that's death stalks us all. Verse 12. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as, that is, as there is more gain in light than darkness. Right, so there was something good. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. It doesn't matter how wise you are or how foolish you are, your end is the same. I said in my heart, verse 15, what happens to the fool will happen to me. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool. And so I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after win. Gibson says in his book that these things like pleasure and accomplishment and possessions, the things that we chase, this happiness that we're chasing, this the things that we toil our lives away for. He says they're actually bubbles insulating us from reality. And God's needle, the sharp point he uses to burst that bubble, is death. It stalks us all, death does. It terminates our chase for happiness. Life is a bus stop, but we have an enormous ability to keep pretending that it's a palace and trying to make it look like a palace. And death is the one thing that has a way of reminding us the few seconds of our existence here are nothing but a bus stop. So why are we trying to live as though this is the ultimate palace? Listen to how this ends, verse 18. I hated all my toil, which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. I mean, think about it. You toil a whole life. You try to make a, some progress against the curse of the world. 
Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled, verse 19, and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Now, let me just try to make one application here as we wrap this up. Um, I think the reason we have a hard time getting into the tone of Ecclesiastes, it's so depressing. What Christian would ever speak like that? How, how could we say this is reality when we have Jesus? All right, just hang in there for a second. Um, we have this very human compulsion that Scripture testifies to over and over and over again to chase after happiness in this world to make our life count or be significant in this world in some ways. And yet this is a world filled with uncertainty. We are really, a lot of times, if we're not careful, we are like butterflies trying to carve a road through granite if we just flap our wings harder. I think what Ecclesiastes does for us is it says, you cannot change reality period. And so there's a shaft of light that if we read verses 24 and 20 through 26 from everything that's been said so far, this ought to stand out in bold letters. And we'll come to it again in this series. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. That's how you fear God. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? You see, you can't because what will happen is the gifts will become God's and they will disappoint you and consume you. But God enables you to enjoy his gifts without turning them into God's. So verse 26, to the one who pleases him, as it says here, and this is how you should think about these last two phrases. To the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. In other words, the ability to enjoy life. But to the sinner who keeps chasing after happiness, all he's doing is gathering and collecting, which will only benefit the person who's enjoying God, ultimately. And for that person, it's vanity and a striving after when. So Gibson says, instead of using these gifts, education, pleasure, accomplishments, etc., as a means to a greater end of securing ultimate gain in the world, we take time to live inside these gifts and see the hand of God in them. Or as I like to say for this series, life is meant to be enjoyed, not mastered. And this is how I think God speaks through Ecclesiastes to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted. Let me give you one example of this. I think this was one of the most helpful things that Gibson says that hopefully will be as disturbing to you as it was to me. He says, this is what we do, we pretend. 
Let's pretend that if we get the promotion or see our church grow or bring up good children, we'll feel significant and leave a lasting legacy behind us. Let's pretend that if we change jobs or immigrate to the sun, we won't experience the humdrum tedium and ordinariness of life. Let's pretend that if we move to a new house, we'll be happier and we will never want to move again. Let's pretend that if we end one relationship and start a new one, we won't ever feel trapped. Let's pretend that if we were married or weren't married, we would be content. Let's pretend that if we had more money, we would be satisfied. Let's pretend that if we get through this week's pile of washing and dirty diapers and shopping lists and school runs and busy evenings, next week we'll be quieter. Let's pretend that time is always on our side to do the things we want to do and become the people we want to be. Let's pretend we can break the cycle of repetition and finally arrive in a world free from weariness. So really, as we think of Ecclesiastes, this would be my thought for you. How can we help each other this month break our addiction to pretend? I'll give you one thing that could, you could think of for just this week. When your mind says, or your words come out and say it, you know, if only I was, and then you fill in the blank. Or if only I had, and then you fill in the blank. You've gotten off the freeway and you're chasing happiness. Maybe a way to think of it is, I think we are trying so hard to escape the samples of hell in this world that we're missing the samples of heaven. Can I say that again? I think we're trying so hard to escape the reality that we live in a world where we're constantly experiencing samples of hell. And as a result, because we're trying so hard to escape that, we're not actually experiencing the samples of heaven. Let me give you one, two quick examples. You can become so discouraged and so depressed because you're trying so hard to do something good and something right, but it just seems like year after year you are barely getting any traction. When you really could be basking in the joy that you even want to do something good and right. When you can be basking in the joy that no matter how many times you fail, because the Holy Spirit does this to us, he makes us get up and keep on trying. And so your life that you think is failing is actually beaming great glory to God. But because you have an unrealistic picture of what it's like to live in a fallen world, you're discouraged and depressed because you're not getting the traction that you want. One more example. You're battling worry. You're worried that something bad will happen to those you love. You're worried that something bad's going to happen to your body. You're worried that something bad's going to happen to this country. Guess what? Sooner or later, it will. That's reality. That's reality. And reality stinks, and reality scars. But look at verse 26. In the midst of such a world, we can have wisdom, we can have knowledge, we can have joy, we can have God. We can have what really matters, and that's enough. So, I hope you'll stroll through Ecclesiastes with me this month of July and learn how to enjoy life instead of trying to master life. 
And hopefully I've bothered you enough that you're going to say, oh man, what's he doing? Uh, but let's do this instead. There we go. One more thing I want to say about Psalm 39, but first I want to invite the worship team, the guys serving communion today. And I think most of you know how this works. We come down the center aisle. The bread and cup are here for all of you who know Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. So come and enjoy this table that has been provided for us. Uh, and then I'll lead us together in just a moment in um, taking of the bread and cup. If you want to, to, if it would help you to look at Psalm 39 while you wait for everybody to get bread and cup together and maybe meditate on this, this psalm can be broken down in kind of two simple little sections. Life isn't working for me, the first six verses. But then what's so amazing about it is that you would expect this psalm to say, Lord, fix everything. Make everything happy again, Lord. But actually, that's not what the psalm says. It's a show me how fleeting my life is. Remind me of reality. And then it says this right in the middle of the psalm. Verse 7 says essentially this. Lord, you're all I need. He's the only one that's nailed down. He's the only one that we really need to hold on to. And Christ lived this perfect life on our behalf. Christ paid for all of our addictions to trying to chase happiness over and over again. And he was raised to show us that there's something better. There's a better reality, not this reality. And his spirit in us, as we learned about in the shorter catechism today, or the, the new city catechism, his spirit in us can help us. The Spirit can help us wait for that better reality. And this is the way I'd put it. What God's Spirit does is He helps us sample those little pieces of heaven. Like for me, having a squirt gun fight with a grandson yesterday. You know, when I would have rather just chilled out and disappeared in the world in a show, the Lord instead had me serve my, my daughter, and it turned out to be far better than my own plan that day. Uh, it was just a sample of heaven. didn't last long. The Lord can help us sample heaven instead of trying to turn those gifts into heaven, making them last forever. But he also, every so often, will make us sample hell. Things will scar us and hurt us, and it will awaken us to the reality that this is a bus stop. This is not my permanent home. Not only will it do that, it will remind us that if it had not been for Christ, that sample of hell would not be a sample. It would be our destination. So we come today in gratefulness for the fact that God has made a better reality for us and leads us through this one.